0: We are going to be continuing in the book of Exodus. We only have a few more weeks in this sermon series. And a preview we talked about at the family meeting last week, but we'll be talking about more to come. Uh, After the book of Exodus, we're going to be looking at uh, daily liturgies of life. What does it mean to worship God on a daily basis together as a church? And we're going to be walking through something uh, together, providing some materials for you, but also walking through that on Sunday morning uh, on various uh, ways of looking at what does it look like for us to have a rhythm of worship in our life. Um, And so I'm really excited about that. That's coming, and we'll be talking a lot more about that as we get closer to that. But today, we are in the book of Exodus. All right, how's that coffee situation? Anyone get coffee yet? Is it? Oh, it's up. Look at that. So if you want to sneak out and get coffee now, that's all right. Just not all at the same time. Finnegan, first one out. Look at that. Does he need coffee? Anyone think that he needs coffee? Very concerned. All right. Um, well, actually, you know what? This is great. This is a great illustration, actually where we're going this morning. Have you ever heard of this thing called the marshmallow test? This is a psychological experiment, um, and uh, it was performed uh, a while ago, and uh, really about the idea of studying how willpower affects Lifelong success. Now, there's actually a bunch of new studies around this and questioning some of the results and, and walking through some of those things and how predictive can this be about success later in life. Uh, but that's not what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about what the actual marshmallow experiment is. Right. So what this is, is this a study that was done. It was done with, I think, four-year-olds. And they were brought in, and you were, they were given a marshmallow and sat down and said... Okay, I'm going to leave, and you have this marshmallow here. You can eat it right now if you want. But if you wait, I'm going to leave the room, and when I come back, if you wait and it's still here when I come back, you get two marshmallows. And the question was, could a four-year-old wait to eat a marshmallow, or could you wait to get coffee, right? Same, same thing. Now, now I'm not promising double coffee afterwards, though if there's some left over, you can fill up double coffee afterwards. John taking off too. Look at that. Everyone's taking off, getting coffee. No, this is great. But the question is, can you wait? Can you delay gratification? Now, the story we're going to look at today is not a cosmic marshmallow test. As we'll see, the motives are different, but also so are the stakes. We're not talking about marshmallows here. But the reality is, we're gonna see a situation in which Israel is facing having to wait. And they're not very good at waiting. Because what they're waiting for is worship. And when it comes to worship, we cannot delay gratification. We are going to worship. If we were to do a worship test and have to wait, we would all instantly fail because you're always worshiping something. You're always worshiping something. The question really is not whether or not you are worshiping, but what you are worshiping. And so that's what we're gonna see here this morning in Exodus chapter 32. So we're just gonna walk through this story together. All right, starting in verse one. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, They gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. This verse is truly staggering. We don't know what happened to this Moses guy who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Now, to understand how staggering this is, you need to remember the actual story, right? Remember what they have been through. Israel is in Egypt for 400 years. They are enslaved for 400 years. They are waiting on redemption. They are groaning for God to show up. And when God finally does show up, right, he shows up miraculously. These people gathered here right now with Aaron, They have seen God's deliverance. Remember, God delivered them through ten plagues on the people of Egypt. Plagues going specifically after the gods of Egypt saying, your gods are no gods at all. They crossed the sea and watched the Egyptian army be destroyed. They walked across on dry land, and then the Egyptian army was destroyed by the water. When they didn't have food to eat, God showed up and gave them manna, bread from heaven. And then, when they were still hungry and wanted meat, God gave them quail to eat. They were thirsty, and God had Moses strike a rock, and water came out. They have seen miracles, and then they see God descend upon the mountain. This is what had just happened, right? Exodus 19. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of, the, of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. They have seen God descend on the mountain right above them. And then they're given the law. And after they're given the law, Moses reads the law to them. And he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. And after that, Moses ascends back up to the mountain to receive more instruction, all the instruction that we've been talking about with the tabernacle and all these pieces, right? Then Moses climbed up the mountain, and the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites, at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up, it, up the mountain. He remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So you waited 400 years to be delivered. God delivered you miraculously to be his special possession. He will be your God, and you will be his people. You've seen him descend on the mountain. You can actually still see him in fire, at the summit, and Moses is gone for 40 days, and you're like, yeah, let, make us some gods to lead us. Do you see how staggering this is? This is staggering. 400 years waiting to meet with God, and he's right here, and Moses is gone for 40 days, and Israel's like, I've had enough. I can't wait any longer. Make us some God's. Now, before we're too harsh on Israel, what do we do when we have to wait? And not about waiting 400 years, because none of us have lived 400 years, right? But we have to wait. And what do we do in our waiting? What about if you're waiting on justice? Waiting. God, you promise that you will show up that your strong right arm will break the arm of the wicked that you will work for justice and i'm just waiting and i haven't experienced it what if you suffer from chronic pain from physical pain mental pain emotional pain from loneliness and you're waiting on relief and it won't come what if you're waiting on satisfaction I feel unsatisfied by life. Life is hard and I don't feel when I wake up in the morning that it's going to be a good day and I'm just waiting on satisfaction or waiting on a relationship. Intimacy, sex, marriage, family, waiting. Waiting and struggling to live in accordance with what God has declared. Either in waiting or in experiencing Desires that fall outside of what God says is the ideal for creation. And I'm waiting. What do I do? How do I wait for this? And in the waiting, sometimes we feel, I can't wait any longer. We kind of think of life, don't we, when we're waiting, like a cosmic version of the marshmallow test, except a lot crueler. You say, wait for heaven, wait for this. I promise I will show up and wait, wait for me. And we say, God, I'm tired of waiting. Where are you? You don't show up. The church doesn't show up. My friends don't show up. You know what? I'll take my chances with the marshmallow I can see and not with the one I can't see. I'm gonna take the chance because I can see it in front of me. So so before we get too harsh with Israel, let's look inwardly. Are we not in the same position where we are waiting on something and we can see it right in front of us, so we'll take that rather than wait on something else? The question is, all right, Israel wants them to do this, right? Israel's like, Aaron, come on, make us some gods. Now, right, Aaron's going to show up and be like, guys, come on. Do you see the fire on up above? Do you remember that you said, I will obey everything that you commanded? And what's the first command? Have no other gods. Like, we're going to break number one and number two by making a graven image right away. Come on, guys. Aaron's going to rebuke them, right? Well, not exactly. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. There's a lot of things to note here as we walk through this text. First of all, remember what we talked about last week? What did we talk about last week? Crafting with purpose because you were crafted with purpose. And Aaron takes that gift from God in crafting To make a God. The irony is huge. He's crafting with purpose, not to the glory of God, but to make other gods. And he makes this new God, and Israel says, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they decide, we're going to celebrate with a feast. Friends, be careful. Not all excitement and celebration is good. Not all religious excitement and celebration is good. What did Aaron say? He said, we're going to have a festival. Did you see what he said? He said, we're going to have a festival to the Lord. See how that's all capitalized? That's the word, that's the name of God, Yahweh. That's what that means in your Old Testament when it's all caps. When it's just the capital L and lowercase, it's just lord or uh, master or uh, like an honorific title when it's l-o-r-d capitalized that's the name of yahweh so aaron says we're going to have a festival to yahweh who's on the mountain who said not to worship me by graven images but we're going to do it with this calf so aaron's like we're going to mix a little bit of what you saw in egypt with a little bit of what yahweh said and we're going to make it good And guess what? Everyone's like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. Do you know how easily we can be swayed to go along with religious excitement? With religious excitement? Now, excitement and celebration are not inherently bad. But lots of things can be celebrated and make people excited, which doesn't mean it's the right thing. Everything has to be checked by the word of God. See, the people of God, immediately delivered out of the Exodus, with God on the mountain above them, are going to worship in a way he said not to. Do you see how easily we can be deceived? We are not unlike them. We are not unlike them. Now, the idolatry and sin, they participate in this festival. There's eating and drinking and pagan Revelry, this, uh, that, that section, this section is referred to by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Um, and if you know anything about Corinth and what was going on there, it's not, not great. And Paul's saying, don't be like these folks. Also not great. This is not a kid-friendly celebration going on, right? This is not good. This is not good for the people of God. But here's the question. Right, So often when we talk about idolatry and sin, we say things in the church like, don't do that, it's bad for you. And then when you experience sin in your life, you're like, yeah, but it is also fun. Let's be honest here. Sometimes sin and idolatry brings joy and excitement and fun. There's no use denying reality, saying sin is terrible and no fun. No, 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 it is, but it's only enjoyable really in the short term. We're not commanded to do it because it's not fun, right? There's other reasons we're commanded not to do it. So to deny reality doesn't help us any, right? Donuts taste great, but if you consume them constantly, they will kill you and will make you miserable, right? Sin kind of works that way. It might taste great in the moment, but eventually it will kill you. Eventually. But in the moment, that's not what you're going to experience. So to say otherwise probably denies reality. Idols work that way, right? They convince us that this thing is good for you and we can commit to it long term. Now, what's going to happen to Israel in the midst of this scenario? The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You notice the switch in which how God is talking to Moses? The people I brought up out from Egypt, right? What did they say? These gods delivered us. Moses, who delivered us out of Egypt, the Lord is simply speaking in the same way that Israel is speaking. Oh, you want to know who, oh, you think these guys delivered? All right, go ahead, go ahead. Let's see how that works out. They have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now, leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people, whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? See the way in which Moses is switching this to say, No, 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 Lord, I know that they are stubborn. I know that they are sinful, but you brought them out into this land. Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember, your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. What's going on here? Well, first of all, The response of the Lord immediately is the righteous response to idolatry. He's gonna consume them. He's an all-consuming fire. He is holy. They have corrupted themselves by disobeying his very direct command immediately after he saved them. The righteous response is judgment. And yet, Moses stands in the place of a mediator for them. Moses steps in and says something to the Lord, and it says that the Lord changed his mind. Now, what does that mean? How are we to understand that? Remember the whole scope of Exodus. Remember the whole scope of Scripture. How are we to understand what does it mean that God changed his mind? Well, there's a few things that we can say. First of all, we can say that all language about God is an accommodation, meaning when we say, how long, O Lord, or wake up, or speak of God's eyes or hands or feet. He's a spiritual being. He doesn't have eyes or hands or feet, right? We're speaking in language that we, as finite humans, can understand. All of the scripture does this. So if God declares, this deserves judgment, and I will bring judgment upon it, and then doesn't bring judgment after Moses' intercession, how are we to understand that in any meaningful way with language except by saying that God changed his mind? Now, not in the sense that you and I change our minds as ones who don't know the future and are not sovereign over it. Remember the promise that God gave to Moses. He said, or sorry, the promise that God gave to Abraham when he's talking about the land. He says, the people are going to be enslaved for 400 years. Before it happened, God already knew what was going to happen. The story of the scriptures is that God is sovereign over all things. Proverbs says, the lot is cast in the lap, but the decision is of the Lord. Right, the lot, meaning rolling the dice. The decision is the Lord's in the most random event possible, rolling dice. And yet, it also declares that our prayers, just like Moses' is in this Moses's, that's hard to say. Just like Moses's, in this instance, are heard, really heard, and really effective. They're not just going through the motions like some sort of robotic fate. That's not how it works. This is a mysterious tension in the scriptures. So is the Trinity. And what we do when we try to over-explain one of these things is to fall into some heresy. Right? We don't want to do that. So we can't over-explain this mystery. God is sovereign over all things, and yet Moses' intercession is very real. How does that work out? I don't know. You can ask him when you get there. Because I just am telling you, this is how the story reads. Like, it's just there. God is sovereign over the whole thing. He knows exactly what he's doing, right? He tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then also it says in the scriptures that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Which is it? Did you harden it or did he harden it? Yes. That's it. Yes, it's there. I don't know how that tension works out. We're not told those details. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that he has revealed belong to us. And so, we're simply trying to to be faithful to what this says. So let us not use this, let us not use this passage to say things like, God is open to the future and uh, unknown possibilities. Unknown to you, yes, but not to him. That's not how he works. Also, Let's not miss the point. The point that this text is making is not on this uh, detailed theological discussion about how God works and his will and all these things. The point is, wow. God is not capricious. He does not just show up in some uh, uh, tyrant way where he is just gonna burn them up for no reason. No, God is holy And also, God is insanely merciful. The point that we should take from this is, Lord, why would you not burn them up? They immediately disobeyed. You did everything for them. You are literally present with them. What more could they want? And yet, they still disobey. Why are you not going to start over? Isn't that the same thing we could say in the garden? You have everything. Why not start over? Like, why why do this whole process of redemption? How is this going to work out? God's mercy is what we should see from this. He changes his mind. Now, the rest of this story brings in another tension point, though. God changes his mind from this disaster, and yet, still doesn't end super well for Israel here. So what are we to make of this? Let's, let's hear the story, and then we'll talk about what to make of this. Moses turned and went down the mountain. He held in his hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. Now, remember here also, when Moses intercedes, he does not see what's happening. He can't see. God can see. So God says, this is what's happening. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Now, now wait till Moses sees what's happening, right? These tablets were God's work. The words on them were written by God himself. When Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below him, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, it's not a shout of victory nor the wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of a celebration. When they came near to the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing. And he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. They were written by God. Threw them down. He took the calf they had made and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it in the water, and forced the people to drink it. Finally, he turned to Aaron and demanded, what did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? Right, he's like, Aaron, did they tie you up? Like, did you have to make a hostage video? Like, what happened? How did this happen? Don't get so upset, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. When they brought it to me, I simply threw it in the fire and out came this calf. This is literally every conversation a parent has had with a child, right? Like, what happened? I don't know. I, I don't know what happened. This is also literally every conversation we have with the Holy Spirit. I don't know what happened. Like, oh, uh, hey, this thing happened? Well, I, I don't know. I just, I, I was here. You just showed up magically there? Or like you took steps to walk there? Like you knew what you were doing? Like, oh, that thing that I've told you about over and over again, where I've convicted you and said, hey, this won't lead to life. Not like I've shamed you, but I've, I've convicted you gently and said, this will lead to death. You will feel terrible about this. And you still walked there. You still went there. You still knew, hey, if I take this step, if I make this little accommodation for sin, two weeks from now, I'll probably sin fully but I'm still gonna take this little step. I know where it's going, but I'm gonna carefully craft it, right? Or on a bigger scale, when it comes to injustice and the church's role in this, sometimes the church shows up in places in America and we're like, hey, wait a second. This place is a disaster. Also, we're a Christian nation. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Excuse me. Let me me just get this right. You want to claim this part of it and say this part of it's none of you? Ah, I don't know. Maybe you've carefully crafted this thing. Maybe you didn't just throw it in the fire and it came out a calf. Maybe we should spend less time yelling and critiquing the culture and more time in repentance and on our face because we've carefully crafted this very thing. And when you get it in its raw form, it doesn't look very pretty, does it? It doesn't look like we wanted it to look. And sometimes we have to taste the bitterness of that idolatry in order to know that it is not the sweetness of the Lord. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And all the Levites gathered around him. Moses told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each of you take your swords and go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other. Kill everyone, even your brothers, friends, and neighbors. The Levites obeyed Moses' command and about 3,000 people died that day. So they didn't kill everyone, right? Because we're, we're talking like there are hundreds of thousands of people, right? gathered here out of the Exodus, right? So, so they didn't kill everyone. But it seems more likely that they killed those who were participating and or leading in this sinful endeavor. Then Moses told the Levites, today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, for you obeyed him even though it meant killing your own sons and brothers. Today, you have earned a blessing. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. But the Lord replied to Moses, no, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Now go, lead the people to the place I have told you about. Look, my angel will lead you, lead the way before you. And when I come to call the people to account, I will certainly hold them responsible for their sins. Then the Lord sent a great plague upon the people because they had worshiped the calf Aaron had made. There are consequences for their sin. They have to drink this idol that's been ground up 3,000 people are killed by the Levites and according to 1 Corinthians 23,000 people Paul says 23,000 people died that day now it could be that it's 23,000 people died from the plague plus the 3,000 more likely it's 20,000 people died from the plague 3,000 died from the Levites there is very real consequences for their sin so there is judgment very real what about your sin sometimes we blame all sorts of things for the bad things going on in our life sometimes it's just the consequences for our decisions you choose idols and those idols they're dead They don't work. They aren't God. And so they let you down and those have consequences. Now, I need to be clear. I'm not saying that every natural disaster or sickness or thing happening in the world is a direct result of one person's individual sin. That's absolutely not what the scriptures teach. And yet, there is very real consequences in your life for the decisions you make. Sometimes, pursuing the immediate gratification thing actually ends up hurting you and ruining things. We all know this, right? We've experienced this in our lives. But the bigger question is the actual unknown question left by this text. The unknown question by this text is, what will happen to the promises of God? He says, I'm gonna erase all who have sinned against me Moses says, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna wipe everyone out, wipe me out with them. He says, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm still gonna deliver them to the land. But there's this tension point, right? Sounds like tension. How are, like, what we really wanna hear is Moses go up and say, Lord, would you forgive their sin? And God say, yes. End of story. There's left a tension here. And the tension is increased because of God's relationship with Israel. Because you're like, wait a second, they were delivered, they immediately sinned and broke the very first commandment and second commandment you gave them. Like, are they going to just keep doing that? And are you going to keep forgiving them and bringing some consequences? Or at some point, are you just going to wipe them out? Like, how's this going to work? That tension continues throughout the Old Testament. Because throughout the Old Testament, the story is, wait, a, wait, 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 do this. No, well, we're going to do this instead, right? Uh, we want a king like everybody else. No, 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 I'm your king. No, 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 we're going to make a king. Okay, well, that's not going to go well. And then all the kings over and over again, they, even the ones that did what was right and pleasing in the sight of God, they add this phrase immediately afterwards, and yet the high places in Israel weren't torn down. That's like idol worship in Israel didn't stop. Wait, wait, they continue in that over and over again? How is this gonna be solved? How can God show up with a sinful people? And maybe you are asking not just about Israel, but about you. Maybe you're like, yeah, but, but, but my life's the same thing. You tell me this, and I just keep doing that. I keep thinking that this thing that I put my hope in will be the answer for my life, and then it's not. And I know I'm supposed to trust you, but I keep not trusting you. I keep running the other way. God, how is that going to be possible? Part of the point of this story, I think, is to show how absurd idolatry is, right? Because it's really absurd. It is extreme. And yet it's also what you and I do every time we take our eyes off of Jesus. So who could possibly be secure in their salvation? Well, only if God's gonna show up. Only if God's gonna do something else. See, what what Moses, there's a a hint in this story. What does Moses say to God? He says, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. You made an oath with them. The author to the book of Hebrews says this about that oath. He says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham right? The same promise. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it, and without any question, that oath is binding, right? You hear people say all the time, probably don't recommend saying it today, but like, on my mother's grave, um, Bad form to say today, guys, right? But, right, people say things like this, right? Like, I'm swearing on something else greater than me. I'm swearing on something else to hold me accountable to something, right? Well, who's God gonna swear by? Who's gonna hold God accountable? Who could possibly hold God accountable? Is Abraham, is Israel in this situation, are they simply in a place where they have no recourse? You said you were gonna do it, but... Who's going to hold God accountable? God swears by himself. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who have received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we, hope, as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. This is the very thing we've been talking about for weeks, right? The tabernacle. How are we to find hope that we can enter the presence of God? He says we can have a sure hope because God never lies, and he made an oath to himself. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Here's the thing about this oath. This is how God makes this oath with Abraham. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them and in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. Now, this is uh, an ancient covenant ceremony that's going on. In an ancient covenant ceremony, what you would do is take animals, and you would split them in half and lay them out, and you would agree to terms with the parties, and then you would both walk through the animals saying, if I don't hold my end of the bargain, this is what you do to me. If you don't hold your end of the bargain, this is what I do to you, right? This is the agreement. Now Abram's asleep and he sees smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. The land now occupied by the Kenites, Canaanites, Ken- Cadmonites, Ken- these are hard. Oh, that's it. <laughs> it was too hard to read the rest of it, right? The tension of the idolatry is only solved if God is going to show up. In that covenant-making ceremony, Abram didn't walk through. God promised the land I will do this for you. You're gonna obey me. And yet, Abram doesn't walk through. God goes through twice. God swore an oath by himself. He said, here's the terms of the covenant. If you disobey, you will face judgment. Except you didn't walk through. I walked through on your behalf and on my behalf. You see, the tension Of the entire sacrificial system and the Old Testament, Israel is going to come week after week, day after day, and sacrifice before God, saying, God, will you atone for our sins? We cannot do it on our own. And they're left with this tension every time. Is God going to do it? Because tomorrow I'm going to sin again, and I've got to bring another goat. I've got to sacrifice again because I've sinned again. And sometimes you and I live our life exactly like that. We think, oh my goodness, I messed up again. Everything's done. I'm gone. God hates me. And tomorrow, so tomorrow I'm going to give more money. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to do this better thing. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to get up and read my Bible in the morning, all this stuff. And then when that doesn't happen, you say, oh no, God hates me. Over and over again. Because we forget that God walked through that twice. He said, I will bear the punishment, not you. I will bear the punishment, not you. I'm gonna do it. And so what we can do is wait on the Lord. If God is going to bear the punishment, you see, because what happens is Jesus comes God himself comes in the person of his son, Jesus, lives among us and then dies a death on the cross in order to pay for the punishment of your sin and mine and then raises from the dead so that you and I can be accepted. Not only does he pay our punishment, he also obeys in our place. So if you're trusting in Jesus, in him alone, you have fullness of forgiveness, assurance of forgiveness. You can walk boldly into the inner sanctuary because Jesus has already accomplished salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. And now in the midst of that, we can wait on the Lord. Now I'm not talking about waiting on the Lord like waiting on the marshmallow. Like if we just wait on the Lord now, we'll get a better reward later. That's how most of us deal with sin in our life. We're like, no, 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 just wait, just wait, because it's going to be better. Promise, it's going to be better. It's how many of us think that the Christian life goes. We have to obey the test and then we get the glorious reward. See, that's not really what's going on here. God is not saying to the Israelites, you know, there's this thing out there that everyone gets, this fun, don't do it, just wait and I'll give you better. It's not what he's saying, not exactly. Now, certainly, Jesus does call us to deny ourselves. Absolutely. We have to lay down the worship of idols. We have to lay down the sinful pleasure and excitement of the moment, certainly. But it's because those things can't satisfy the things that you want them to do. But Jesus can. The Lord is saying to them, not No, wait for that heavenly reward that's going to be awesome. No, he's saying, stop looking to that. Look to me. Look to me. Friends, we can actually have it now. Waiting on the Lord isn't just waiting patiently and denying yourself. That's true, yes, but it's more than denying. It's redirecting. It's redirecting our gaze from the allure of idols that will not give what they promise and directing it to the Lord Jesus and his matchless grace. The reality is, guys, I cannot convince you that the pleasures of this world aren't fun, that sin isn't going to meet something that you think you need. I can't convince you of that. What I can do, show you one, Who made you, who loves you, who sees all of your idolatry and sin, who sees how you disobey immediately when he tells you something, who sees all of that and says, I'll take the punishment for your sin because I love you. I'll be your God, I'll be your all. Don't run the other way because you're fickle. I know you're fickle. That's why I came, so that you could be secure. You see, we have something that Israel didn't have in that moment. The book of Hebrews tells us, you have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command if even an animal touches the mountain it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said I am terrified and trembling. That's how glorious God is. No you have not come to that. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. This is not the book of Revelation. This is the book of Hebrews talking to Christians. If you have come to Jesus, you have come to this mountain. You get it now. And what do we get? You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. You have come, friends, to Jesus, where you can experience the glory of God not in terror, but in joy and forgiveness and love and awe. Come, worship Jesus. That's what we need. That's the story of this text. And we get it, and we can have it right now. Pray together. Father, we come to you now. Because although you say that we have come to Mount Zion, Lord, many of us feel like we're not there. We feel like we can't get there. We feel like we're waiting on something. We're running away. We're running towards other things that we think will satisfy. And Lord, we're afraid to come because we are afraid that you hate us. Lord, would you remind us of the gospel? that you have dealt with sin once and for all in Jesus so that we can come boldly into the presence of God. Jesus, remind us of this truth. Awaken our hearts. Help us to connect with you, Lord Jesus. Gain all glory from our worship, God. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. I invite you guys to stand as we respond and sing and worship together.